You're listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the Diversity Movement. On this podcast, I'm talking to trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. Thanks for listening, everyone. Today, we're fortunate to have two esteemed and award-winning guests on the show, Jacqueline Font Guzman and Bernie Mayer. Jackie and Bernie, thank you for being here. Would you each take just a moment and tell us about yourself, whatever you'd like to share about your family, your background, your identity, and your early career? I'll go ahead and start. I am Jackie von Guzman. And first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And I, I'm originally from Puerto Rico, really, truly passionate about the beach and the mountains and just really enjoying and going out for walks. I think people that have been highly influential in my life have been my, my mother and my grandmother. come from a family of strong women um, who have always really advanced and want to activate change in some way, shape, or form. I come from a family who overall, they have been activists and really wanting to affect change. And that has led me, I guess, in my journey to be here today and working as the inaugural executive director for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Eastern Mennonite University. Awesome. Thank you, Jackie. Bernie? Well, thank you again for inviting us beyond this. I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Let let me just say this about my background, that I uh, am a retired professor of conflict studies at Creighton University, where Jackie and I worked together. And before that, I was for many years a partner at CDR Associates, which is a conflict intervention firm located in Boulder, Colorado, but it works all over the place. My maybe deeper background was I'm the son of Holocaust survivors, grandson of Holocaust victims. And uh, that was a very important part of how I grew up with a commitment to social activism and social change. Also kind of was a child of the 60s where I was very involved in all sorts of stuff that went on then. I now live in Canada on the north shore of Lake Erie with my wife, Julie McFarland, and I have a bunch of kids all over the world. And the only one accompanying here here today will likely be my my dog, Teddy. So (laughs) I love that. Bernie, thank you so much. I appreciate you both for sharing. And Bernie, you alluded to the fact that you met Jackie at Creighton University. Can you tell us more about that experience working together? Well, we were actually hired at the same time and started within a day or two of each other. I think it was in 2006. Is that right? Mm, That sounds about right. Yeah. And we worked together for 14 years uh, in a program. It was a negotiation and conflict resolution, a master's degree program. For a while, Jackie was a director of the program. Actually, for a while, I was the acting director while Jackie was off on a Fulbright, but otherwise, he was the uh, leader and, and a very effective one. And we found ourselves allies in many different ways. We taught some together, we presented together, we consulted with each other on writing and related activities. And we also found ourselves allies in the inevitable academic issues that came up, some of which were just everyday and some of which were actually pretty difficult. I think it's fair to say we had each other's back. 
So then when it came time to think about who might be, you know, how we might work together on, on this new project, it seemed like we had a lot in our background that allowed us to do that. Mm -hmm. Jackie, anything to add about how you met and that early relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think I would echo that. I think I was, uh, when, when I started working at Creighton, actually, I was moving from Puerto Rico. So I had been, my husband and I had been there before. And so I was new to the town. I was new to the job. I was in the field of conflict already, but in Puerto Rico, which, you know, different crowds that don't always connect with the, the United States just because it's an island and it's harder to do those sorts of things. So Bernie was, we did have our back, always each other's back. Um, but also Bernie was like very supportive and in introducing me to this new world of people that were in the field as well that I had known or I had been reading their work. But, you know, islands can be a little bit insular when you're living in them. And so we also connected through a lot of that. And we started then having like even like friends in common. And so out of all of that, I really, we got to get each other to get to know each other's family. And it's just a really good collegial and, and friendship started to develop to this day. Yeah. You know, sponsorship within an organization and just having that person that can help you navigate a new role or a new company is so important. Jackie, tell us, Bernie mentioned Fulbright Award. So can you tell us what that is and what you did with that? Sure. So, I mean, Fulbright Scholarship is a pretty prestigious academic program where the the origins come from Fulbright, who wanted to. He was, a, I think, it was a senator at, at the um, U.S. Congress, and he wanted to create a world where people could connect with each other. So, a bigger, not seeing the U.S. as you know we at the center of the world, but actually connect with other countries. And so, he has all he developed all sorts of Fulbright programs. This one in particular is for faculty who want to go abroad to do some work. Sometimes it's teaching, sometimes it's researching. And in my case, it was to teach in, in Madrid, Spain, teaching courses that were actually about mediation, dialogue processes, and, and ways of advancing change through the processes that we use in conflict resolution to either solve problems or engage with them or stay with them or or advance some sort of change. So we got to go there and live for like four um, months, my husband and I. And Bernie was kind enough to say, probably not too excited about it, but he said, <laughs> I'll have your back cover. I will do administration so you can go out on your full bride. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Now, you both have extensive backgrounds in conflict resolution, and this is something that many of us struggle with in our personal lives and our professional lives. How do we go about approaching conflict with good results? Well, that's a very broad question, of course, because it depends on the person, the context, the conflict. Yeah. I guess I might say that a theme in a lot of the work we've done in this teaching and as practitioners is that we don't think in dealing with important conflicts, deep conflicts, that we get, I mean, we make progress by trying to solve them too quickly. What we really both believe, I think, although Jackie will certainly correct me if I'm wrong, is that one of the biggest mistakes we make is rush towards superficial solutions that often do not attack the problem at the roots and as a result can actually end up being more about how you maintain a system, a status quo, rather than change it. 
And so that one of the things that we believe is that we have to be willing to live with conflict often for a while, even sometimes escalate it, uh, as we also work to see what agreements are possible. We're not certainly not against agreeing where there really are agreements possible, but we believe these need to be seen in the context as a context of a longer process. And this is particularly true if you're dealing with issues such as massage, racism, homophobia, things on that of nature, because there are a lot of agreements that could simply be made of a superficial manifestation that don't get at what's really going on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would actually add, if I can, that building on what Bernie just said, our obsession with neutrality and trying to stay a little bit detached and, and be objective prevents us from raising and engaging with conflict in ways that are actually constructive and conducive to make really institutional change. I think there tends to be a focus on things like communicating effectively or um, drawing on people through communication. And I think communication is not the same as connection. And I think communication is far more important and far more long lasting. And because we are trying to focus on being neutral, we hold ourselves back from really connecting with the person on the other end of our point of view or perspective or the person we're in conflict with. And we end up with band-aid solutions or, or things that are that don't really address systemic change that maybe potentially can address the problem for this one person because we are finding a loophole or running around and making some sort of adaptation so that we make it work for that person. But the root of the conflict continues to be there. And I think in many ways that we need to start valuing more connection and seeing communication as a way of connecting and not necessarily as a way of trying to understand each other. Because I've also found that that prevents us or holds us back from caring. And I think caring is more important than understanding. And when we focus on ground ourselves in communication, we're trying to understand, we're trying to be objective, we're trying to be neutral, and that leads us to disconnection. And that takes us away from actually true meaningful connections with each other. You know, that's so interesting. And many of us like to, you know, hover over neutrality, right? Thinking that's the best approach. But, you know, how does neutrality negatively affect a situation? If we could dig a little more into that um, with the two of you, I'd love to understand. Because again, that's where, well, you know, I'm, I'm neutral, you know, or, and they loved people love because it's comfortable, right? You don't have to pick a side. You don't have to, you know, necessarily take a stand or, you know, you can just hover and you know, I'm not picking this side. I'm not picking that side. Tell us why that's not always the best approach. Uh, I love your connection of the word neutrality with hovering, because I think for a lot of, and in a lot of languages, neutrality comes very close to meaning doing nothing. It's sort of like a car is in mm. neutral, you know, it's idling. It doesn't go forward or backwards. And in a way, that's exactly the issue. First of all, nobody knows exactly what they mean by neutrality. It has lots of different meanings, and most of it is unattainable. If I'm a mediator and I'm told that I need to be be neutral, which means I'm going to have no biases or I'm going to have no sense of maybe agreeing with one person more than another or even caring more about one person than another, that's not me. That's just asking more than humanly possible sometimes. And also, if it says, you know, well, all right, but it just simply means that you're you're not you don't have any out uh, stake in the outcome. The problem is most of us 
have some kind of structural connection. So for example, if I'm going to mediate between a husband and a wife, chances are there's going to be two men in the room and one woman. And that there's a structural lack of neutrality there. So it's a very misleading and I think um, not useful concept. It's closely related, connected to the concept of objectivity, which also isn't something we can truly offer because of our values and concerns and life experiences. What we can offer is a commitment to try to help people have the conversation they need to have or the interaction that's productive to have. And we can offer authenticity and transparency and honesty about our own values, that they're there. So the neutrality trap is specifically, in my mind, refers to if you take the neutral stance, the hovering stance, I'm now going to start using that word, to uh, conflicts where there is uh, a power differential, inevitably, you're, side, you're going to end up siding on the side of the more powerful. If you don't do something to structure a process that counteracts the structural forces of, of inequality so that people all, all people can be have a powerful voice, then what you're doing is providing a playing field where the more powerful person gets to predominate. Wow. I actually would also add that neutrality stems from a position of privilege. The times when I have stepped up and when it's something where I am the one that I feel I'm being marginalized or or somehow excluded comes actually from from a position that neutrality is supporting a status quo that is not working for me. And my instinct or my need to react to it really comes out many times out of desperation, right? Like this is like my only, I need to do it for my own survival, for my own safety, for whatever the circumstance is. And so if you think about that, I think that's why I say I am okay with being neutral if I'm in the position that is status quo uncomfortable because I am fine. And so neutrality can be very dangerous when we're talking about affecting change and, and advancing equity and social justice for everyone. Mm-hmm. Wow. I knew this hour was going to be amazing. Um, I'm already learning so much. I have chills because I never thought about it that way. And so um, I'm so excited. All right. Let's talk about your book, The Neutrality Trap, Disrupting and Connecting for Social Change. What inspired you both to write this book together and what can readers learn from it? I still remember when Bernie called me on the phone and said, hey, I have an idea. I, I want to write a book. Would you want to be a co-author, um, co-author the book with me? And, and at the time, I, I was still at, in Omaha working at Creighton University, and I, had, I was working on a draft of a book proposal for how do the arts and humanities advance social change and disrupt, can be used as agents of disruption but really focused on Puerto Rico and the experience of Puerto Rico. We had gone and I had participated in bringing down the, at the time in 2019, in the summer of 2019, the then governor of Puerto Rico for some misogynist comments and racist comments he had made. And and so I said, wow, the arts and the humanities had such a impact on this. I want to write about this. And so that's kind of where I was. And Bernie, as always, we read each other's stuff all the time. Um, he had been giving me some really constructive feedback on that. 
And that's kind of the place where I was when he called me and, and talked about this. And I said, wow, this would be not only an honor to be able to, to work with him, but also it would allow me to transmit a message to a wider audience, that it wouldn't be just grounded in the colonial experience of Puerto Rico and my experience there, but that I could bring some of those stories into a larger framework. Mm -hmm. And then Floyd had been murdered and that kind of had gotten me thinking about other things that I had not been thinking when I was focusing on my original project because that had not happened yet. And then COVID happened and the exacerbation of inequalities worldwide sort of was a call for me to say, well, we can do something better and bigger together than what I could do on my own writing this book. And I just love working with Bernie. So it was a, mm -hmm. it was kind of a no brainer for me. <laughs> well, let me, let me add that I've been thinking about a problem that field of people who work on conflict and peacemaking has, I think, has to confront. But not just them. I think social activists more generally need. There is almost a Pavlovian response to major conflict that when conflict professionals like mediators or facilitators or, or peace, uh, people who see their lives as peace builders is that we need to bring people together to talk and to better understand. So... That's what some was said after Trump was first elected, you know, that we just need to try to understand each other better. And it's a lot of what happened after George Floyd was murdered, um, where people were saying, we just need to bring the community and police together to talk and understand each other better. It reminded me of when I was an activist during the Vietnam era of everybody, I, myself included, saying, all we are saying is give people a chance. But I remember thinking, no, that's not all I'm saying. I'm saying more than that. Although giving peace a chance is a good thing. Bringing police and community together is a good thing. Trying to understand across our political differences is a good thing. It's just not enough. And if that's all you say, then I think you're saying we don't really want, we want to calm things down. We don't want real change. Instead, there has to be another side of the message, which is why the subtitle of the book is Disrupting and Connect for change. And that is that we have to understand the systems that are, that are perpetuating these problems, whether it's, you know, racism or environmental depredation or the inequality of incomes. We have to look at the systems that are doing it and figure out what we can do to disrupt those systems so that they have to reorganize in a better way. Which is, by the way, exactly what I think people who work in the area of diversity, equity, inclusion are trying to do in an organizational setting. Which is, if they just look at all the individual examples, people conflicting or feeling done to by something and try to settle those and not looking at the overall system that is perpetuating the problem. So that's what we wanted to write about. And being as we both had a background in intervening in some very difficult sometimes awful conflicts, and as social activists, I think we all both had a feel for both sides of that equation, and we wanted to explore the connection, tell some stories about it, try to conceptualize the relationship between the two and put it in practical terms, and understand when does a, a focus on connecting and dialogue really make a difference, and how, when is it not such a good idea, and what do we mean by disruption, and how can we understand the nature of systems disruption better? So that's, that's what we address in this book hopefully in a very practical way, I think in a very practical Absolutely. I think one of the things that I love, especially about the title, is you're calling out the two things that are necessary for real change, to enact real change. And that's the disruption and the connection, right? Because you, a lot of times people want to start with, you know, Bernie, as you said, give peace a chance and just starting with that connection. 
but you've really got to disrupt the system so that you can create a level of or an opportunity for equity to then, okay, now how do we come back together and connect here? So I think that's so important. And you, I mean, just really nailed it right in the title as to, you know, these two pieces that create social change. So let's dig into that a little bit. What are your thoughts on, you know, when we think about enacting social change, right? That's that's a big undertaking and, you know, it's and it's intimidating. So if we're thinking about that and doing this work, what are some of the initial things we need to start thinking about to disrupt and then connect, right, and create the social change? One of the things we do talk about in the book is the distinction between strategic disruption and chaotic disruption, which I think it's important to to clarify here. I think disruption is absolutely necessary, and I think Bernie and I both agree on this. And there's the chaos that happens with the disruption initially when people are just, you know, taking on the streets, or if you're an organization or an institution, um, you know, getting together, students protesting and making a list of demands, and just the, the emotional and the anger just being out there and calling out people on things that they should be doing and they're not doing. And I think that is important. It, it calls attention to the conflict. It calls attention to the inequity. But if we just stay in that cycle, we're not going to affect real change. Mm-hmm. So we need to, at some point in time, start moving towards the strategic changes that we want to see and be more strategic about, in the cases of an institution where, where I am right now, what are the leverage points and what is my strategy to really make systemic change, right? To really be strategic about where do I want to go? And I think people in the audience who may be doing DEI work would probably resonate a lot with this, which is, you know, you have you have funding, you have donors, you have money coming in to advance DEI. And I'm always holding the tension of, I don't want to use the money to put a Band-Aid, except when I absolutely have to, right? So there's some real needs. But how can we start using the funding and the money to really be strategic about the kind of chaos we want to raise about the need so that things become institutionalized and now they're not now they're not being funded by soft money, but they have become someone's operational budget responsibility, right? So I think one of the things is, and you can and you can get there by being strategic about the disruption, by not staying in the chaos constantly, which I think is necessary. But if we stay there, we don't advance change. So I think those are two things that I'm always looking at in terms of, and I think it works the same in, in social change in, uh, at the larger society level, but also at institutions. One of the things which we worked on in our book was to have people as part of that bridge of social activism with um, conflict was to say the skill sets that are out there for social activism that have been successful can also be brought into our institutions and organizations, that there is a relationship between social change and activism and institutional change, and that they don't live in separate worlds and we can actually learn from each other. Mm-hmm. So so for me, it's always about being strategic and looking at the system at the larger picture and where are the leverage points or where will I have the most impact? Um, I would add to that or build on that. One is that, you know, we do need some of the chaos, chaotic disruption. I think a lot of times people are very upset when there's an initial craziness, like uh, people take to the streets like they did after George Floyd was murdered or after Rodney officers who who beat Rodney King up were acquitted or after Dr. King was assassinated. There was a lot of you know, anger, and there was some violence around the edges, and it, and, and yet there was energy that that created, and it made an issue be seen and, and become more to the forefront. 
But in order to carry it on, in order to have a longer-term process, you know, you need leadership, you need organizational structures, you need a change strategy, as Jackie was talking about. I think there's a concept that is useful, that of nucleating change, which is a systems concept. You know, you nucleate, there's a disruptor put into a system, and that disruptor causes a system to reorganize. It is a disruptor that creates positive feedback loops, which is systems talk now, but it is important for what creates change. So we could translate that in a couple of ways. One is, what are issues that we each face in our day-to-day lives or that people we're concerned about face that they can focus on and do something about that represent much larger issues? You could call them you know, transitional issues. For example, if you look at putting in a particular landfill, in a community that is going to lead to a toxic discharge into groundwater. That's a very specific local issue that people are concerned about and they can work about. But it connects to a much larger issue about how we create waste, how we create more than we need to create in terms of materials. And that's just one of many, many issues. But it's it's a way in which you can have a strategic focus on something specific, and it has a way of getting to work on on larger issues. Another example is something my wife, Julie McFarlane, is working on now in an organization called Can't Buy My Silence, which is looking at issues of how we enable sexual harassment and and violence in the workplace by encouraging people to sign non-disclosure agreements which allow the perpetrators of violence to go on to the next place and are very damaging in a lot of ways. So by there's now all sorts of legislative initiatives and legislation has been passed about it. It's a specific issue that creates a larger sense and translates to the larger context. So it's how you do that and it's how you also work in the immediate present, begin to think about the long term. So those are some of the things that I think that we address and, and, and we think are very important if we really want systems change. Absolutely. Now, why do you think organizations try so hard to avoid the conflict of tough issues? I might put it a little differently. I think organizations avoid conflict that they don't want to handle. So if they don't like what mm-hmm. some people are doing, they are perfectly willing to go down and tell them, you better stop that or else. But when people raise issues that threaten the power hierarchy or the power structure or the privileged position, that's what organizations resisted and systems resisted in many dramatic and sometimes incredibly hurtful, harmful, and destructive ways. And why they do it is they're trying to maintain their privileged position for the organization, I think. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that's why it's so important And that's the other piece that we do, that the disruption is important, but the relationship building is also important so that we can connect with those people across power differentials, across differences, to be able to start then making that disruption sustainable and strategic. Because it is about sharing power and it is about trying to build empathy. And I think stories there are really powerful and helpful to do that. Um, It is a lot easier for me to deny something or to preserve a status quo on a process if I am completely in the dark as to what are the real impacts that that process is having in, in someone's life. And the way to get at that usually is by bringing it to life with the story of the people or the students or the employers or or employees, depending on where we're at, to really bring that point across. And so that's where that disruption and connection sort of come together. Absolutely. 
So you are co-teaching a course this summer. Tell us all about that. Well, this is at Jackie's University. It'll be the <laughs> first time I've taught a course in, in, in person in over two years. Five-day intensive based on our book, which will really try to take all of these issues we've talked about and will expand them into a much more people will be given a chance to actually construct change campaigns and also to look at how dialogue can be part of a change campaign, how a connecting and a disrupting can come together in specific areas that are looking at. And we'll look at stuff such as nonviolence as an approach to social change and intersectionality as a concept that has to be considered and worked with. It's Jackie knows the system a lot more than me. I probably shouldn't have jumped in. I can give some context. So, um, yeah, so as I shared before, um, I, I've been now here working at Eastern Mennonite University for a year. And part of my portfolio also starting now in July 1st would be um, serve as a strategic visioning director for the Center for Justice and Peace Building, which is flagship um, center and program for EMU. And they have historically for since the beginnings have this program that is called the Summer Peace Institute. SPI. And they bring courses that are related to peace and social change and nonviolence and just basically advancing peace building and, and, and all this type of work. And so Bernie and I will be teaching between June 6th. And so they open it. This it's a it's a wonderful space. More than more than a space for teaching, it's also a, it's created as being a space of community and gathering and building and relationship. So it, it takes place during the, the entire, most of the summer. And ours in particular is going to be from June 6th through June 10th. Historically, there's been a lot of international students also that come in to take the different courses that they want to take. So it's a really great sense of community. Um, we bring in scholars from pretty much literally all over the world sometimes to teach these courses. So if anyone is interested, they can actually go into the Eastern Mennonite University um, website, Center for Justice and Peace Building, and look at our course. And what we want to do is it'll be the first time for me teaching face-to-face -face also in a long time and actually co-teaching with Bernie in a while since it's been um, the last three years or more. We haven't really done anything face-to-face -to -face together. And the idea is to give people the tools to be able to go into their institutions or their communities and put into and apply some of the tips and the the tools and the skills we're providing in the book to actually impact social change within their sphere of influence, whatever that may be. So exciting. Now you both mentioned the term peace building, and I want to dig into that just a little bit. What is that? How do we contribute to that? It sounds great, right? How do we contribute to that as individuals? Well, it seems to me there in our lives, there are multiple opportunities. But um, let's maybe talk about the peace building in a broader sense, and then we can talk about how we do it. You know, we often talk about negative and positive peace. And negative peace is stopping the war, stopping fighting. Negative peace is what we better get in Ukraine pretty quickly, or hopefully get very quickly in Ukraine, because people are getting killed and awful things are happening. Positive peace is right. contending with the problems that led to conflict. You know, building the security networks, structures that help all people feel safe, dealing, building in more civil society into, into the communities. And so I think one thing that we can think about is what are the actions that lead not only to the end of violence, but to the, for the more constructive communal basis for ongoing relationships and coming together. And I think we 
all can ask ourselves, what are our opportunities to work towards dealing with the sources that create you know, stress and, and create the conditions that lead people to be polarized and to go after each other in our own families, neighborhoods, organizations, and our world. And I think they're, they're all around ways in which we can do things. And, and, and one of the things that I, you know, let me talk about connecting for a moment. One of the things I think we can do is seek to try to have conversations with people we really disagree with. A place where a lot of those conversations started by being good listeners, but it, that in some ways is the easiest part. Not easy, but easiest. The harder part. The simplest part. Is to how do we go from there to saying what we have to say so that we are true to our, our beliefs and our views in a way that invites conversation rather than shuts it down. In many ways, peace building, what it adds to the more traditional mediation and negotiation and the more individual process is it's really looking at at structures as well. So what does it need? What are the structures and what needs to change, whether it's policies or the way we relate to each other in our community that really needs to change for that peace to be sustainable and everlasting? And I think that's that's the other piece that peace building brings that the other conflict resolution programs they they not that they don't aspire towards that but peace building really mentions that and aims for that and it's part of the goals that they want to do when we're engaging in peace building absolutely ah that's such good information so you wrote a book together you're teaching a course together what's next for you two vacation maybe What's next for me is um, really working on bringing and operationalizing a lot of what we wrote together in that book in my role here as um, in, in diversity, equity, and inclusion at EMU, at our community at large, um, in the Center for Justice and Peace Building, to be able to equip our students, in my case, since I'm in an academic institution, to really be able to learn how to organize for change and movement. I think our new generation is primed and ready for that. What Jen Lewis used to say, get into good trouble, to really support them in being agents of social change um, in ways that are productive, nonviolent, constructive, and make things happen. Um, so it's a, it's a goal and aspiration. And I think that's what's next for me right now. Awesome. Bernie? That's often a um, existential question for me because I retired and then almost two years ago and started working on this project and a number of other projects related. For example, I started working on a project that looks at implicit bias and white racism in the conflict. Jackie and I both did some work on what is it that people uh, in our field might have to say or ought not to say about Ukraine which was something else we could talk about. Um, I, too, want to focus on how I can work very locally uh, at putting some of these ideas into practice, considering a a number of different ways of doing it. And I also feel, in accordance with something Jackie said earlier, that it's time to write stories about experiences that we've had, that we've learned about. There's a lot of stories in this book, but it just strikes me that in a way maybe that's something, not necessarily in a book form, I'm not sure what form, but to tell the stories where I've really had to bring together the worlds of conflict, uh, intervention, and social activism, which it turns out we're always there. There are always two strains that all of us face, even if we don't consciously identify ourselves in that kind of work. And then the immediate next thing is I'm next week I start on a series of trips to see my kids who are located really all over the place. 
Awesome. That's amazing. Well, I have enjoyed this time with you both. I want to end with one last question, and I'd love for each of you to take a moment to answer, but what is the message that you want to leave our listeners with today? Well, I think maybe one is a lot of messages, but one important message is despair is our enemy. That it sometimes feels overwhelming to, when we face crises like climate, for example, or endemic oppression, or and things sometimes seem to be going backwards, like with voting rights, for example. But you know, the as Dr. King said, the the art of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I do believe in that, and I believe that we can make a difference. And what we do individually and collectively can make a difference. But but that optimism means it doesn't work if we're naive. We have to be realistically optimistic. And that means that we need to really face the challenges more complicated than simply being peacemakers, for example, or simply being hovering above the, the, the fray. That it means really engaging with some messy things and dealing with uncertainties and doing the best we can when we're not sure what to do. But if we do that, if we do that with the intention of really contributing to the world we live in in a constructive way, we can. And we suggest we have throughout here. I would add, from my perspective, I would, you know, we, we can make this happen. I think we're at a crossroads, um, not only in the U.S., but in the world. My my mother used to say always to me since I was when I was growing up, she said that whatever your religious beliefs or non-beliefs are, but she said, well, at the end of the day, if you're a religious person, it would be, you know, when you face your creator, if not towards the end of your life, that you either had to answer to your creator or to yourself just one question. And that question was, what have you done with the gifts that you were given? and your talent. How how have you used that for action to change the world and make the world better for others? And so I would encourage people to just think about, you know, one thing, one area, something under their sphere of influence, whether it's their work, their community, and think about and reflect about what is the gift that they have that they want to used to be able to answer that question and and go out and make change happen. I, I think it's a pendulum. It goes back and forth. But I think we're at a, at a crossroads where we can actually together um, make change in ways that advances a more equitable and just world. Wow. Amazing. What an amazing way to end our season. So thank you both so much for your work and your thought leadership and for taking some time with me today to have this discussion. How can people get in touch with you? You could probably Google either of us and you'll get it right away, but I'd be happy to hear from people at Bernie S. Mayer, with an S between my Bernie and Mayer there, at gmail.com. And my institutional email can be found uh, emu.edu, Eastern Mennonite University. So if you Google there and Google my name, you will see my my email and my, and my contact information and some more information about me. Jackie Ferguson, uh, I, I, want, I want to thank you for the work you're doing too. This is really an <laughs> example of how yeah, the yes. arena in which for social change work. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for creating these spaces. They're important. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and review this podcast and share this episode with a friend. Become a part of our community on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. 
I'm Jackie Ferguson. Join us for our next episode of Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Take care of yourself and each other.